0: Good morning, KPC. I am so thrilled to be here. Um, As Steve said, um, I first came to this church in 1971. I was 11 years old, Um, so I was watching the kids this morning and thinking about what it was like to come and be part of this fellowship um, at that age. My military family, Navy family, moved here And my mother, like many military moms, knew the important thing, it was the middle of summer, so she knew the important thing was to get the kids doing something. So her strategy usually was to sign us up for Bible school at whatever Presbyterian church she found. So it was Bible school at KPC that week, and we came to Bible school. And um, at the end of the week, of course, parents had to all come watch us dance up front on stage. And uh, my parents, who were, lovers of Jesus, but had grown up in a very mainline um, Christian churches. They saw this young pastor, uh, similar to Steve, come bounding up and then preach the word of God from the scriptures. And they said, this is what we have been looking for our whole life. So my parents stayed in that church, in this church, um, until their death. Some of them, you, a few of you might have known them, Jim and Nancy Larson, you might remember. Um, and of course, I grew up and came to Christ here. But you know, in those days, we weren't in this building. We had a little red brick building with a white steeple over in front of um, Kempsville High School where the big Rock Church is. And what happened was Rock Church only had that little building right next door. And they, Rock Church actually owned this piece of property and they wanted to expand, so we swapped with Rock Church. We came over here and we built this. And I think it was finished, I wanna say 1980. Summer or fall if I'm getting, I'm getting a thumbs up, 1980. The reason I remember that was because it was my senior year at UVA and I came, I came home for Forrest Barcliffe's funeral. And it was the first time that I had ever been in this sanctuary and a few of you would remember Forrest, but he was a much beloved elder patriarch um, of the congregation and he, was, he owned a big real estate brokerage in town and was just a expressive child of God. Um, and he figured that the only way that he could get both his colleagues and all his competitors in Tidewater to church is if they came for his funeral. So he convinced, right before he died, he said, he made the pastor promise that the funeral would be a Sunday morning worship service. So we have the funeral pretty much just like we have the service this morning, but with Forrest kind of in the middle. <laughs> and we worshiped and we praised and there were a whole bunch of black suited realtors out there going, what the heck is going on? And then the um, eulogy, the sermon was a brief, a brief statement about uh, Forrest, but then a a proclamation of the gospel because that's what Forrest wanted at his funeral. But you know, it was, as we got used to this building, you know, there's a baptistry back behind this screen. Do you guys still use that sometimes? Okay, yeah, you know, very unusual to build a Presbyterian church with a baptistry. There was a reason for it at the time, don't ask, but it was a thing. But what happened was, the first time that they did an adult baptism in it, these Presbyterian ministers, they're not used to like going, wading in and dunking people. So the associate pastor who was doing it, I think it was Frank Kostenbader, but I'm not sure, he walked in with the wireless mic. (laughs) Yeah, these are Presbyterians trying to do Baptist things. It was not a good idea. So... (laughs) we're all sitting out there going, oh my gosh, (laughs) we're going to go straight from baptisms to resurrections. (laughs) What is going to happen? And I remember him coming out afterwards and, and realizing, he said, I realized as soon as I got in there what I had done and I was praying, Jesus, don't let me drop the mic. Jesus, don't let me drop the mic. But yeah, and then of course we were Presbyterians, so then afterwards somebody got the idea that we really should be dunking babies in the baptistry. Do you still do that? Dunk the babies in the baptistry? Yeah, well, you know, they were trying to like put together all these traditions. And what they worked out was if you hold the baby and you blow in their face, the little baby goes, and you can dunk them. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's some history here. Uh, Yeah, I'm so glad you all are beyond that. Um, But yeah, and I just, you know, this is the congregation I came to Christ in. um, And as I say, the first time I was in this building was 1980. I remember standing up on this platform in 1981 when you all first commissioned me for full-time ministry. I got married on those steps in 1982, and then I was married for 32 years. And, um, you know, Paul Paul says to the Philippians, no church but you has shared in the partnership of a gospel with me in this way. And you all have been supporters, encouragers, financial partners, prayers of me, and really of my ministry for 35 years. So if nothing else, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation. Thank you. And even though it's fun for me to remember the things that have happened here, what's really, what's really the most exciting thing is to see the Spirit still moving through this fellowship and uh, what the Spirit is doing in you and through you, um, within the body, locally, globally. Um, You know, there's not a lot of churches that would have that long heritage and um, it's just something to be celebrated and to give God glory for. So yeah, and I'm really grateful for Steve's leadership now and the other staff who have come in. It's just so good to see KPC in such a great place. So um, as Steve mentioned, I am a missionary theological educator. Um, I have a PhD in New Testament Greek. Somebody has to do this. (laughs) So I do that and I actually love it. So that's my job. And um, in the most recent years, um, I have been, uh, for about the last 15 years, I have been teaching in seminaries in Africa and India. Um, I was in Ethiopia for eight years, from 2000 to 2008. I was in Kenya for five years, from 2008 to 2013, then came home in 2013 because of some very serious family needs. Um, and over the last couple years, I've been resting, healing, and waiting for God to say, what next? And um, praise God, he's now sad. What next? So just in January of this year, well, actually, I was just commissioned by the EPC, which is our denomination, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, At General Assembly, I was commissioned as a missionary of the EPC. And we are in partnership with, um, I'm a member of of EPC, and also a group called Surge, which some of you may know as World Harvest Mission. Some of you know that name. They now call themselves Surge. Grace at the fray. Bringing God's grace to the broken edges of life. I love the ministry and mission of Surge, which is a very reformed organization as well. And... So, oh, I was in Ethiopia and Kenya, and also I've been going back and forth to India since 2005. So I was just there all this summer teaching in a graduate school of theology in India. And you know, I'm like getting old. So I, (laughs) yeah, so, well, no, the old thing isn't a problem. It's just that at this point in my work, I should not just be doing the work, I should be teaching and training others. So um, I will now be working with Surge. They had to figure out a place to base me and we went through a whole rigmarole with that and Dublin turned out to be the ideal place to base me. Now, I would feel guilty about that except I spent eight years in Ethiopia. Yeah, yeah. And all my friends like Steve are like, oh yeah, we're gonna go see you in Dublin. And I'm like, yeah, first dibs to the ones who came to Ethiopia to see me. So, yeah. So, I will be based with Surge's team in Dublin and I will travel out to help Surges where they've done church planting and it's now maturing, um, and they're doing some leadership training. Um, I will go out, I don't wanna be that consultant that just parachutes in for like one or two weeks, I hated that when I was in Africa. So, I will go spend one to four months in a location, teaching locally if there's a seminary, and you know, it's all about relationships, isn't it? So getting to know the local situation, figuring out who our best ministry partners are in the area, if there are theological training programs we can partner with, helping to identify that. If there's nothing, we can start something. Um, I spent a number of years also as the, um, okay, I have to explain this concisely, the accreditation officer for theological schools all over Africa for the the Association of Evangelicals in Africa, does that make sense? So they have an accrediting agency. I was the accreditation officer for the whole continent, which is a friend helpfully said fulfilled my need to be in charge of everyone. (laughs) Yeah, but because I've done that, um, I've gotten to spend a lot of time working with small struggling schools in remote locations, which is really where most of the work happens. And I've also gotten to know, of course, the people who do similar work all over the world. So the idea is that I could bring some of that. And while I'm in Dublin, I will also be teaching at a little school called Irish Bible Institute. Did you know that Ireland, we're talking about Republic, South Ireland, so right now, Ireland is the least evangelized English-speaking country in the world. It's post-Catholic and pretty much nothing. About about 1980, you would have found something like 85% of the population in mass on a weekly basis. Um, About three years ago, they did a survey in Dublin. It was 14% were going to church. There have been two new Presbyterian churches planted in the Republic of Ireland in the last 100 years. And surge was part of both of those. So I will be working with that, and then working in a seminary that's training church planters and um, new leaders for church planting in Ireland. So that'll that'll I do on my downtime, and then I'll see what God does with that. Okay. So that's me. Um, but what I want to talk about this morning actually does grow out of um, the opportunities the Lord's given me, because as I have lived in Africa for those 13 years, and um, Well, and I was in England for four years before that. I've lived in this sort of vague kind of immigration status called resident alien. It's like, yes, I am an alien. So, um, but it's like having a green card. And I bet in a congregation like this, a number of you, maybe military, work, whatever, you've lived in other countries on a sort of semi-permanent basis where you've had a right to dwell in that country, but you are not legal citizens of that country. And I bet, in a congregation like this, there are a number of us who are here in America on some form of green cards. We are resident aliens. There's been so much talk, you know, in the media over the last um, weeks, strictly with the election, about immigration and immigration status. And um, this passage, these first two chapters in First Peter, Peter is accessing the language of immigration uh, particularly of resident aliens, people with green cards, um, to talk about what it's like to live as believers here in this world. So that's what I want to bring us through. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, and I really want you to open your Bibles or grab the Pew Bibles or something because I will be popping around in here. I want you to keep your finger there. In the Pew Bible, it's page 934 and 935. Just keep that open if you want to. And I'm going to be reading um, sort of a conglomeration of the verses just because I'm gonna hit the highlights and then we'll go back and we'll look at these two chapters. But before I do that, let me just pray quickly. Father, we do thank you for your word, for the way that it has been kept and transmitted for us, for the way that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray that your spirit would be here accomplishing your purposes um, help me speak words that are truth, that are true to your message and help all of us um, here with our minds and our hearts, whatever it is that you want to speak to us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I'm going to read first, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, which is your pew Bible. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So that first part is about the security of our salvation. Skipping down to verses 13 to 17, and this is about how we should live. Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy, because I am holy. And Oh, I guess I stopped at 16, yes, 17. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Do you see the language of immigration there? And now I'm skipping over to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and this has more to do with our proclamation and our witness. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So keep your fingers in there and we will come back to that. Um, Now I mentioned that in Africa, I lived in this funny kind of immigration status, resident alien, green card. And it does mean, it's not somebody, it's not a tourist visa. It's not somebody who's just coming and going. It's somebody who's gonna stay a while, work a while, raise their family for a while, be part of the community. And so you are, in the community even though you don't actually, your, your true identity is somewhere else. Okay, so it's a kind of a bi a bifold identity kind of thing. And I'm fascinated, some of you may have heard me talk about this passage before, because I keep circling around to it in my own spiritual growth, kind of seeing how this is showing us how God means for us to live now. I'm going to, um, because I have this PhD in Greek, which you all helped pay for, I'm going to mention just a few words that I wanna highlight um, before we kind of work through the passage. The first is in chapter one, verse one. So look up at the very first verse in this, and he says, greeting to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners, okay? The technical word there, it could be exiles, could be resident aliens, Um, could be a sojourner. But but the point I wanna make is that these are not strangers. These are people who are known to their community, even though they have a different identity. Um, We read from chapter two, verse 11, where it talks about temporary residents and foreigners. Um, We've now got two terms that are being used together there. Um, NRSV has aliens and exiles. So the second word, in 2.11 2.11 is the same word that we saw earlier in one foreigners. Um, the first word, temporary residence, is the new word here, and it's actually the more technical one, okay? So there's two words in Greek, and they basically mean the same thing. They just go, you know, it's like pots and pans, or odds and ends, or I don't know what, Stephen Neal, whoever. But, you know, things that, things that go together to really make one idea. So, and what Peter is doing here is he's actually accessing the language of Israel in Egypt. Israel before they had their own country. Um, God predicted to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his, strangers would be, his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land. And it's the same, it's the same word. Um, when Abraham wanted to, uh, when Sarah died, and he wanted to bury Sarah, and he didn't own any land in Canaan in the Hittite area, so he went to some of his neighbors and he said, "You know, sell me a, a tree, a field to bury Sarah in, because I am a stranger and a temporary resident." So it's exactly the same language that's being accessed here, the people that are speaking that um, Peter is speaking to, and then in 117, where I finished. The time, live your life here during the time that you live as foreigners. Um, Sometimes in other translations, if you're looking at other Bibles, sometimes it says during the time of your exile, and that doesn't quite get it right because that makes it sound like you're exiled somewhere else, but actually you're exiled here, okay? You're living here until your green card runs out. Are we all good with this? Great, then let's talk a little bit about this passage. Um, so living as resident aliens, the first thing that I learned about living as a resident alien is that my identity is secure. My identity as American citizen was secure, no matter what happened. You know, I might live in another country and I'm, you know, somewhat subject, well, I am, I'm subject to their laws, but if there's anything really scary that ever happens, I can go home. You know, home is where they always have to take you. Um, and the symbol of that, of course, is my passport. Now, about two years ago, yeah, it was, it was October two years ago, I was um, on a plane to Kenya. I was going to do a project for the accrediting agency. And I flew out of Dallas, Amsterdam, and I was supposed to go to Nairobi, overnight flight from Dulles Amsterdam. So I get up the next morning, you know, on the plane. I'm groggy, you know how it is. Um, I grab my stuff. I'm walking off the jetway. I'm checking, okay, what time is my next flight? Do I have my boarding pass? Do I have my passport? I don't have my passport. My passport got stolen on the plane while I was sleeping. Yeah, who knew that was a thing? Yes. So my, my passport was stolen on the plane while I was sleeping. It took me a while to find out. I thought at first I had just lost it, but as it turned out, it was stolen. So here I am in Amsterdam, in ne- the Netherlands or Holland, having my first experience as an undocumented alien. Yeah. So I go to the airport, uh, it was uh, KLM, I go to them and, you know, they didn't want to help me. I found out later they're having a lot of these episodes and they probably didn't want to acknowledge what had happened on the plane. But they were not outrageously helpful until I cried and then they were helpful. And then they took me to the Dutch Immigration Police in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, two darling, young, very tall, cute blonde Dutch guys, who were obviously a bit bored because the first guy, as I walked up, the guy said, so, how is your day going? <laughs> Forget it. Um, and I had to work with them for several hours before they could, um, they could contact my consulate. They had to talk to their chief, the ambassador, the consulate, everybody. But, but what saved me was that my identity wasn't actually in the book that was lost. My identity was in the cloud. My identity was in the cloud. And so they were able to access this information. I didn't look like too much of a terrorist. And so they finally let me into Holland literally through the back door of the police station. And they gave me a bunch of documents and they said, get to your consulate within an hour, they're waiting for you. And I went there and they made me the new passport. Actually, I asked the guy, you know, is this just unusual? He said, no, we are having one episode a week of the passport stolen on that flight. Yes, but you know, my people were there and my people helped me and and it was because my identity was in the cloud. And our spiritual identity, this passage tells us, it's by his great mercy. I'm looking at chapter one, verse three now. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We, verse four, we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay and anybody who could take it on the airplane. That is who we are and that is what I've learned. Now, some of us who are here this morning may still be you know, sort of grappling or seeking in terms of that identity. You may not have made that exchange with Christ where Christ has said, come with me to the Father and I will cover your guilt, I will cover your shame. I will bring you in to the family as my child, my brother. Um, And if you're struggling with that identity, um, I know many of us would like to talk with you afterwards. But it's the core It's the core element of Peter speaking to these resident aliens. Unless you know that your identity is secure in the the cloud, there's no point in going further. Amen. The second thing I learned as um, a resident alien is that I am always somewhat other. I am always set apart. I am always somewhat different from the people where I am. And I'm gonna call this the issue of holiness. (laughs) Not that I'm holy when I'm doing these things, but just talking about, you know, because sometimes we're terrified of that idea of be holy, like that means be perfect, but holiness in the Bible means being set apart for God's purposes, not having a divided affiliation. So, you know, I learned what it meant to often be other. Uh, For the accrediting work all over Africa, I used to travel with teams, accreditation teams, site teams. Um, and Usually there'd be five of us, almost always I would be the only woman and the only white face, okay. And so, and, but they would be from different African cult- countries and of course their cultures were quite different. And the game we would play over dinner at night when we finished was who can tell us the grossest thing that you eat in your country? Yeah, this would be fun. Because it's all these guys, you know, they're trying to top one up each other. But the thing is, for several years I used to win because I eat shrimp. Have you ever thought about how hideous shrimp are? They're like little locusts with like little legs that like swim in the nasty water. And like all I have to say is, I eat shrimp. And they're like, (laughs) whoa! So I used to win on that one um, until we had a new guy come in and he was from um, Sierra Leone, I think. I can't remember, but he won because he said we used to boil the monkeys' heads and then cut off the top of the heads like, like hard-boiled eggs and eat the brains. So he won. He won after that, hands down. The shrimp were nothing compared to that. But... Um, yeah, so I mean sometimes it's just a matter of, um, of habits and what you prefer. Sometimes it's really quite serious because, for example, in Kenya, um, you know, bribery is a thing. It's very hard to get anything done in official channels without paying a bribe. And the worst, <laughs> the worst offenders of these are traffic police. And I'm, you know, I'm a little empathetic with these guys because they're paid so poorly. They need the bribes to support their families. It's kind of like tips. But, you know, missionaries, On you know, by principle, we are like, we don't pay the bribes, sorry, we don't pay the bribes. So we would have these episodes, I'd make a turn somewhere and then the guy would stop me, that was an illegal turn. I'm like, that was not an illegal turn. But I'm not gonna argue with them because this is what we learned to do. We said, okay, oh, they would say this illegal turn and now you must take me to the police station. Because the problem is they don't give these guys transport of their own. Yeah, yeah. So they're out there with no car, no motorbike, no bicycle, nothing, and they're supposed to take me to the police station. So they always say you have to, now everybody knew that the one law, Kenyan law said, I do not have to give them a ride. That was one thing I did know. And they knew that. And I said, you know, you know, I'm a woman, alone. I don't think I should take the estranged man I don't know in the car with me. So I will meet you at the police station. <laughs> now, you know, A, they're going to have to get themselves there. And B, they're going to have to do the paperwork once they get there. Because what they really want is me to give them a bribe so we won't do this. But, you know, we just say, oh, I will meet you at the police station. So that usually worked. And then like, oh, well, welcome to our country. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. But, you know, sometimes you really have to stand against not just what what other people's preferences are, but what other people's values are. And it's this sense of constantly being other. And that's what Peter's talking about to his audience in chapter 1, verses 13, um, down to 17. He says, prepare your mind for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your own ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy as I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as resident aliens. Now there's two really scary parts about that passage. One is the whole word holy, which is like, oh my gosh, I've got to be perfect. No, it's not about being perfect. It's about being set apart, being other it's about embracing that otherness for God's sake. The other thing is it looks like there's a zillion commands in here, but actually in Greek there's only three commands. The rest of the verbs are kind of ing ing words, you know, they're, they're dependent. So let me tell you what the three key verbs, the commands in here are. The first one, and I will have to now find my page, well, I can tell you. The first one is set your hope. Set your hope or put your hope, I think, in the NLT. It comes back to that first thing. Where's our identity? Where's our hope? That's the first command. The second command is be holy, be set apart. And the third command is live your life in a way that brings respect to God. That's all. That's all that's in there. That's what he's telling them. And everything else is just nuancing and just being there. Now, I realize that for many of us in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, being other all the time can feel awkward. And you know from living in other countries that being other can feel awkward. There is one way to resolve the tension of citizenship. Um, In many countries, you can now hold an American passport and a passport of that country called dual citizenship. But I'm here to tell you there is no dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. You cannot resolve your tension about being other, about being set apart by God by trying to take on the attributes of a citizen of the, of the kingdom and the attributes of people who are worshiping some other. You cannot do that. There is no dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. The only way forward is through the tension. The last thing is this idea of witness. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires. And look what it says in 12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, which is the outcome of the otherness, right? The being set apart, um, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. There's nothing more all-encompassing about being a resident alien in Africa than visibility. We are always being watched. Um, Ethiopia particularly, because it had no resident, um, you couldn't like do business there as an international, the only, there were very few white people there. So when I lived there, the population was about 70, 80 million, um, and they were probably, the white faces were probably in the tens of thousands. So we were super visible all the time. Some of you heard me tell this story. This is when I really knew. So I had been living in Addis Ababa for about 18 months and there was this little shop, little like about the size of where these people are sitting, um, probably less than that, on my way and I lived about six miles from my office. So about two thirds of the way to the office there was this little shop. I had shopped there once, maybe twice in the 18 months that I had lived in Asa and it hadn't been recently. And for some reason that day, it was just the right place to stop. So I stopped my car, I go into the little shop, and I remember I put on the counter by the cash register, I put cream and ketchup and milk, and the guy behind the counter said, wait for it, your husband already bought milk. Your husband already bought milk. And you know what was crazy? He was right. It was when I knew I was being watched everywhere. My husband at that time was the um, pastor of the biggest English speaking church, not just in Ethiopia, but in the Horn of Africa. And it was the, uh, the African diplomats church. So lots of African uh, UN and African union people. And I used to feel like I had to be nice in every, to everybody in the whole country of Ethiopia because somebody might go to our church. I wouldn't know them, because it was a big church. Except, one time we were traveling to another country in Africa, and we're in the airport, because remember, these were, there were lots of diplomats there. And somebody comes up to us in some other country's airport and says, great sermon last week, preacher. And I'm thinking, now I have to be nice to everybody in the whole continent of Africa, <laughs> because they might go to our church. So <laughs> the whole point is that living as resident aliens makes you very visible. This is the issue of witness. So we have the issue of our salvation, our identity in the cloud. We have the issue of holiness, um, the fact of being set apart as other. We have the issue of witness, being constantly visible, constantly watched. There is, however, a benefit to living. Many of you know what it's like to live overseas, either in a military community, expat community, and that's the fellowship that you get to be part of. You actually, that resident alien community can be very tight. Expat life can be really fun, and that's what Peter says here. He actually says it in verse five. Um, the word for resident alien is oikos or ekos. Oh, sorry, para oikos or para ekos, like paralegal or paramedical, the para part means alongside. Uh, oikos or ecos means the household. It happens to be the where we get the word ecology, economy, ecumenical, the idea of a system, a network of relationships. And so the antidote to being a para-oikos is to become part of an oikos. And that's exactly what he says in um, chapter two, verse five, although NLT, which actually is one of my favorite translations, gets it wrong here. Because he says, you are living stones, chapter two, verse five, that God is building into his spiritual temple. There's no temple word there, it's oikos, it's house. But it's actually house in the household sense, in the relationship sense. Um, Paul makes it much clearer in Ephesians chapter two, verse 19, when he says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, that's our same word, You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family, the oikea, or the ikea, the household. So you get to be part of this community. Now, when I lived in Kenya, I lived on the campus of the theological school, college, seminary, you'd call it. And we had a small, people came from all over Africa and really all over the world to study there, so it was quite mixed. We had a small and very tight network of Americans. And every Friday night, we would have taco night. You were only allowed to come to taco night if you were American or dating an American. Because at taco night, we got to be totally ourselves. We got to talk loud. We got to interrupt each other. We got to discuss the Steelers. We got to eat tacos. We got to be together and be our people. And it's interesting because um, Howard and Willman pick up um, their authors who are actually from Duke, who wrote a book called Resident Aliens. And they talk about, they change the image a little bit. Instead of household, they talk about the church as a colony of heaven. They say the church exists today as resident aliens, an adventurous colony in a society of unbelief. That's who we are. A colony is a beachhead, an outpost, an island of one culture in the middle of another. A place where the values of home are reiterated and passed on to the young. We had to teach the kids how to eat tacos too. Um, A place where the distinctive language and lifestyle of the resident aliens are lovingly nurtured and reinforced. The church is a colony, an island of one culture in the middle of another. In baptism, our citizenship is transferred from one dominion to another, and we become, in whatever culture we find ourselves, resident aliens. This is taco night. (laughs) Yeah. This is where we get together on a regular basis. We celebrate who we are. We remind each other who we are. We teach our children who we are, and we proclaim to the world who we really are because the rest of the time, we're probably out there being other and being watched. Yes, colony. Colony is actually the image that they use. Um, I first went to Kenya in 1984. I was there in 84, 85, 86, leading a short-term mission program. And it wasn't until about 12 years later that I moved to England. There were many things I absolutely adored when I was you know, working short terms in Kenya. You know, certain foods, certain ways of using the English language, certain ways that things were organized, the ways the houses looked, all kinds of things. I loved it. It wasn't until I moved to England a dozen years later that I went, oh my gosh, this wasn't Kenyan, it was British. What I was looking at was the British colonial stamp on Kenya. I was seeing, I had I had been in the colony. Now, I don't wanna debate the goodness or rightness or wrongness of the colonization empire, okay? The only thing I'm trying to say here is that those Brits made an incredible stamp on their colony that changed the way people around them worked and interacted. And what I discovered when I got to England was that I knew the homeland because I had seen the colony. Do you think when your neighbors see God face to face that they'll say, we recognize this because we've seen the colony? We have seen the colony. And please note that this is colony, not gated community. So our call, is to live as resident aliens in the world today. That's what Peter's saying. Now, what's really funny about 1 Peter is that he is actually not talking to people like me who moved to other places. Peter's audience in 1 Peter are not people who have moved. These are people who were born there, who grew up there, but suddenly have a new citizenship. And so he's saying, access the language of immigration to visualize how you live in the community where you grew up. So it's really not about me, it's about you. You are the resident aliens. You are Taco Night. You are the colony. And Peter is saying, hey, if you can make, bring to your mind what it's like to live on a green card, that's where we're meant to be, right here. The three elements that Peter focuses on are salvation. For each of us, is our identity in Christ secure? Is our identity in the cloud? Holiness, are we somehow willing to be set apart for God's use and God's use only, even when that feels a little awkward or tense, even when that otherness is a burden? And are we willing to embrace the idea of witness, that people are always watching, not because it's important about us, but because through us, they will see God. Dear friends, I warn you, As temporary residents and foreigners, as resident aliens, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God. Amen.